I just, uh, I just pray that your presence is here, that we continue to be focused on you and the values of your kingdom as we take this time now to get into your word. I pray that, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, so we're going to jump into our study today in uh, the Gospel of Luke. If you've got a Bible and if you'd like to follow along, if you'll head over to Luke chapter 22. We are here uh, in the gospel reading the final events of Jesus's earthly ministry where he and his disciples are now standing fully in the shadow of the cross. Everything that Jesus's ministry has been about has been leading towards this point all along. He's been revealing, though, the values of God's kingdom over against the values of this broken world. Last week, we read about Jesus's prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. We considered the importance of of prayer and thought through some practical steps of developing our own prayer life, of being able to continue uh, in this uh, attitude of communication with the Creator who loves us. Today we got a short passage that we're going to be looking at. Um, We won't keep you here for five hours, we're Susie, but either way... I still struggle with that. I, 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 I've tried to imagine myself being cool with that, but that's okay. Last week, uh, I mean, today we're going we're gonna to look at this short passage, um, uh, the theme of which is going to be summarized for us at the very end of it, as Jesus will describe these events developing as a time when the power of darkness reigns. And that's an interesting thing. Those times in, in this broken world that we live in, where it seems like evil has the upper hand, Those are heartbreaking, frustrating, frightening. They're difficult times for us. Each of us, all of us have an innate sense of justice that I believe God has built into us. But especially for those of us who who have an interest in God's good being realized on this earth, when we see injustice, when we see evil at work and it seems unchecked, that's a difficult thing for us as, as human beings and especially as followers of Christ. What do we do? What should our attitude be? Uh, how do we process those times when evil seems to triumph and good seems to be suppressed? That's what we're going to consider today as we're looking at Jesus's example and we're listening to his words in this dark moment that he and his disciples are facing. So if you're there in Luke 22, we're going to pick up where we left off, starting with verse 47. If you remember, Jesus has just awoken his disciples, reminding them that they need to be praying. And then verse 47, but even as Jesus said this, a crowd approached, led by Judas, one of the 12 disciples. Judas walked over to Jesus to greet him with a kiss. But Jesus said, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? All right, so we've got to imagine this scene. Suddenly the stillness of the night is broken by the sounds of voices. The smell of torch smoke is is filling the air around them. And a gang of men with clubs and swords invades this space that they had. Jesus uh, Jesus, uh, clearly identifies Judas as the betrayer. Uh, you know, and he's described as being there and present uh, uh, among them, uh, among Jesus's soon-to-be captors, and he greets Jesus with a kiss. And that, of course, is an act that echoes down through history, the famous, or I guess I would say infamous Judas kiss. As we stated before, Judas's full motives are always going to be a mystery to us. What, what 
happened in this man's life? How did he go from being a disciple, being a friend of Jesus for all of these years to being an enemy? Um, albeit an enemy, albeit still in the mix of Jesus's friends. The Judas kiss stands out as a supreme example for us. It's there for a reason. How often evil actually is at work in this world. It's a reminder to us that oftentimes evil tries to hide under the guise of doing good. Judas's betrayal of Jesus was the exact opposite of affection and respect that he was supposed to be displaying by giving Jesus a kiss. The Gospel of John provides a detail in his account that of this moment that I think is so poignant. Uh, it says that Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. That is, he was standing with the ones who were sent to arrest Jesus. He was standing with uh, those who represent a system that wanted Jesus gone. Judas stands out as a warning for us, not to make us not to make us suspicious of one another or not to make us paranoid, but to protect us from gullibility. And that is an important thing. We've mentioned this in an earlier teaching, but association with Jesus doesn't equate to being united with Jesus in his values or his purposes here in this world. People bandy God's name about all the time while doing terrible things. We, I mean, we don't have to try to prove that, right? We know those things happen. And, and usually the person who does that would never imagine themselves as being on the wrong side of an issue. That's what's really fascinating to me. I really believe Judas thought he was doing the right thing in this. It's very rare uh, you know, unless you move into the realm of people who are, you know, identified as psychopaths, it's very rare to find bad guys who actually see themselves as bad. Most people assume they're doing the right thing. Most people consider themselves on the right side of whatever it may be. I went through a phase at one time uh, where I was really fascinated with World War II history. I just couldn't get enough of it. I was reading everything I could find, watching all these different documentaries. One of the little details that I learned during that exploration of, of mine was something that's really stuck with me for a lot of years, and that is that the, the Wehrmacht, the, the, the German army, the soldiers of the Nazis, uh, they were the epitome of what we would consider the bad guys, right? When we think, I mean, anytime you get into an argument with somebody over some whatever, everybody goes to Hitler. You know, we can start comparing everything to Hitler. Always, that just becomes the kind of the go-to thing, especially in our culture. But I would say historically, historically, as we look at it throughout, you know, the 20th century, the Nazis stand out as the bad guys, right? I don't think anybody's going to argue uh, with that. And, and, and yet... The detail that I, I want to point out is that every single soldier on the belt buckle that he wore uh, into battle had uh, the words engraved on it, God mit uns. It was all on their belt buckles. And what that translates to in English is God is with us. The, the buckle was symbolic of what holds everything together. They were held together by the belief that God was with them in the things that the Nazis were doing. And I know this is an extreme example, but it reminds us of this truth that, that invoking God's name is not enough. It's not enough. 
Judas was close enough to Jesus to kiss him, but he was standing with his enemies and doing their bidding. That's just a reminder for us, again, not to make us paranoid, not to make us suspicious, but to examine what it is that we hear. You know, when, when, we're, when we're presented with whatever it is, organization, group, leader, whatever it may be, boasting about their commitment to God or to Christ, we need to look closely at where they're standing. Examine the fruits that they're producing. Don't be fooled. Let's not be quickly fooled by just a quick uh, reference to God. It's just something to keep in mind. Okay, we'll keep reading. Verse 49. It says, When the other disciples saw what was about to happen, they exclaimed, Lord, should we fight? We brought the swords. And one of them struck at the high priest's slave, slashing off his right ear. But Jesus said, No more of this. And he touched the man's ear, and he healed him. I mean, listen, the way this is all written out, you got to admit, this is this is great drama, right? I mean, this stands up after 2,000 years. And I've read this how many times, and I still love it. I'm still caught up in the moment of these events. It says in verse 50 that one of the disciples pulls his sword and attacks. We know from John's gospel who that disciple was. Did anybody know? It's Peter. That's right. Peter, he's the samurai disciple. He grabs the sword and his launches. I totally believe that Peter is meant to be our stand-in disciple. He, he was sleeping instead of praying, and when he gets startled out of his nap, he just comes out swinging. I mean, you know, <laughs> you know, he's he's taking matters immediately when he sees what's developing. He's taking matters into his own hands to set things right, and I believe this provides a timely lesson. For us as 21st century American Christians, that when evil seems to win, we cannot fix things through fleshly zeal. We are challenged to surrender our zeal to God, to a a spirit-led action, if there is one even to take. But Peter, you know, he wakes up, he evaluates the situation, and listen, his evaluation is correct. Like what he sees and and what he recognizes, he's not wrong in, in this. Something terrible is happening here. What's happening is unfair in what they're doing. Jesus hasn't done anything wrong. And what is happening here in his arrest is not just. It is not justice. So he impulsively acts on his own evaluation, probably gives out a war cry, uh, and ends up creating a whole different situation that Jesus then has to clean up. Jesus says in no uncertain terms, no more of this. No more of this impulsive outrage and violence that only makes things worse. This is a time, what Jesus is communicating to them is this is the time to surrender in order to fulfill the bigger picture of God's plan. Now in Matthew's account of this same event, it adds the words that Jesus spoke to them after stopping the sword play saying that those who live by the sword will die by the sword. And partly what's being revealed in that is that the kingdom of God advancing in this world is not going to advance like the kingdoms of this world. It's not going to be employing those same methods that same way. We're not taking up swords to force someone into compliance. But it's also pointing out that this uncontrolled zeal can be very problematic. It doesn't really fix things. It actually just creates more problems uh, along the way. 
So often when unfair things happen and it just seems like evil has the upper hand, we think, well, you know, if we can just stir up something, like get kind of excited over an issue or start whipping up the emotional fervor. You know, in our outrage, we don't grab a sword. We just throw posts out on social media, start criticizing and vilifying and cutting off as many ears as we can. Now, listen, here's the thing. Uh, it's, it's great to have zeal for God. I mean, that is a great thing. We don't ever want to try to quench that in anyone's experience or, or, or in their own uh, hearts or responses to the kingdom. To be passionate for God's kingdom is a wonderful thing. But we have to surrender our zeal to God's guidance and to God's values as we go. I mean, that, that's the very definition of, of meekness. When we're called to be meek, we're not called to be mousy little people who, who, you know, are afraid of everything. Meekness means, literally means strength under control. More specifically, strength under God's control uh, over things, to, to God's values. Um, so, I mean, Peter had a zealous loyalty to Jesus. That's a good thing. And I think he truly wanted to do something good in this situation, but without surrendering that zeal to God's bigger picture, to God's values, he ends up working against God's purposes, all while he's trying to do something for God. And, you know, I'll I'll just point to church history for 2,000 years for us to find the examples of how that plays out again and again for us as followers of Jesus, that tendency to, to, to allow that zeal to work us into something that ultimately puts us at odds with what it is that God wants or what it is God wants displayed in this world. So instead of whipping up some fleshly zeal, let's remember God's values and God's priorities. Paul says in Romans 12, don't let evil conquer you. You conquer evil by doing good. That's how he describes it. I mean... That amazing kind of picture emerges from Jesus healing the, the very man who came to arrest him. It's a, it's a meta view, a meta picture of the gospel at all. It's God having mercy on sinners who are set against him. Jesus overcame the evil of that by doing good. That is the value that conquers evil. It's exactly what Jesus is going to live out for us through the rest of this gospel as it unfolds. Jesus, when the, when the powers that be within the religious realm and the governmental realm of Rome, when they all arrayed against him, he didn't take up a sword, he didn't set up defenses, he didn't start calling names. No, he's healing ears, he's speaking kindness all the way through. His, his words uttered on the cross, which, you know, everybody knows. When they're, when they're nailing his hands and feet to the wood, his words are not, God curse these people for what they've done. What are his words? Forgive, Forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. <laughs> Overcome evil by doing good. That's the value of the kingdom. All right, moving on, verse 52. Then Jesus spoke to the leading priests and the captains of the temple guard and the elders who had come for him. Am I some dangerous revolutionary, he asked, 
that you come with swords and clubs to arrest me? Why, why didn't you arrest me in the temple? I was there every day. But this is your moment, the time when the power of darkness reigns. All right, this is such an interesting detail in Luke's gospel. Along with the temple guards, we know in John's gospel, there are Roman guards there as well. They would have probably had to have been alongside of the temple guards because people didn't operate independently of Roman supervision in that sort of thing. But the, the temple guards were, were soldiers who were hired by the Sanhedrin to maintain order in the temple district. Uh, but it says there that the, the leading priests and elders were present there as well. And Jesus turns his attention to them, you notice. And he calls out what clearly is a demonstration of cowardice and hypocrisy on their, their part. He's pointing out they had ample opportunity to arrest him in front of the crowds at the temple where he was every day. But they knew that would be bad PR because most of those crowds looked at Jesus favorably. So instead, they staged some theatrics here and they come after Jesus like he's a, a dangerous revolutionary. We've got to arm ourselves and get out there to get this guy. It reminds me of like when my son was in high school and uh, he'd be out somewhere and I'd try to call him to find out where he was. And I'd say, son, you know, where, where are I? And I'd be talking like this. Son, where are you and when, when are you coming home? And he, in front of his friends, would say, Dad, stop yelling at me. Why are you saying those things? You don't mean that, Dad. And I'm on the other side, well, I didn't say, what, what, stop that? But it's kind of what's happening here in, in this story. They're yelling at Jesus to drop the gun. He didn't have a gun here. But it's what Jesus says to summarize what's happening that's so powerful. This is your moment, the time when the power of darkness reigns. This is your harah. In the Greek, and given the context, it means this is your limited amount of time. In light of eternity, this is your moment to do this injustice. This is the space for your limited reign of darkness. And his wording is intentional, and it carries such an important message to us that when evil seems to win, remember it is only temporary. God is still in control. This is the great mystery of God at work in this world. It seemed like the Sanhedrin was in control and behind them the evil machinations of Rome. But the reality is God and his Christ are really in control, orchestrating even these evil choices into something that ultimately will be healing and good for everyone who's willing to believe it. It wasn't obvious. I mean, if you were just observing the situation, it wasn't obvious at all. It, it, it really couldn't be seen in that moment. But it was true nonetheless. That moment was their moment. But eternity is God's. And this is something the biblical narrative reinforces over and over for us. It's one of the key things to keep in mind so that we don't get discouraged at the way things go in this world or worse, that we don't give in to despair when we see how things happen or when it feels like evil has the upper hand. God is in control. Prove it, Rob. No, I can't. I can't. But I believe it. And that's what we're called to all through the scriptures. Will you believe this? Will you believe it? That he is in control. And in light of eternity, evil only has a moment 
to do its worst. And listen, that is the whole message of the book of Revelation, which we taught on just a few years ago. Over and over again, it's re-emphasized to us. All these monsters are out here in the front, but you pull back the curtain and you see back behind it. God and God of the angel armies is fully in control of what's happening here. And so I, I, I mean, listen, here's the thing. And I'm, I'm, I'm prone to this as well. I'm, I'm reining that in. But, you know, when we as Christians, we fall into patterns of outrage and we go and display those things on social media, which seems to be the vehicle of choice right now. To me, it, 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 it's a realization that the, the message of God's victory from the Bible is not really getting through to us. We're not really getting it. And I'm not, I, I'm not scolding anyone or anything that, because, you know, that we're slow to grasp this is not unusual. <laughs> you know, this is the, this is my complaint to God all the time. This was his big mistake. He put humans in the mix. Everything's going to go stupid when humans are in the mix. And listen, even while scriptures remind us again and again that God's in control, the scripture itself shows us that we as humans forget this truth and we have to be reminded of it over and over and over again, even in the biblical narrative. Psalm 73 is a classic for that. Do you, do you, do anybody... You probably, that's a terrible thing. <laughs> a guy who spends all his time reading the scripture. Hey, you remember what Psalm 33 said? Psalm 33, I want to take a moment and read it to you because it's, it's really good and it's really encouraging. And I, I suggest it becomes something we read multiple times throughout the week, especially on times when the world seems to be spinning out of control and we feel so frustrated with what we see. You know, maybe make it into a prayer. That we repeat. Eugene Peterson says that 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 the Bible is God's word to us, but the Psalms are our words to God. And it would be a great thing to develop a pattern of reading the Psalms as part of a prayer. Uh, But uh, you know, to repeat these encouragements from this when things get dark and it seems like the moment of evil is stretching out longer than we would want. But I'm going to put it up on the screen, and and it's so good. I'm reading out of the NLT Psalm 73. Truly. God is good to Israel, to those whose hearts are pure. But as for me, I almost lost my footing. My feet were slipping and I was almost gone for I envied the proud when I saw them prosper despite their wickedness. They seem to live such painless lives. Their bodies are so healthy and strong. They don't have troubles like other people. They're not plagued with problems like everyone else. They wear pride like a jeweled necklace and clothe themselves with cruelty. These fat cats have everything their hearts could ever wish for. They scoff and speak only evil. In their pride, they seek to crush others. Jumping down to verse 12, look at these wicked people enjoying a life of ease while their riches multiply. Did I, did I keep my heart pure for nothing? Did I keep myself innocent for no reason? I get nothing but trouble all day long. Every morning brings me pain. If I'd really spoken this way to others, I would have been a traitor to your people. So I tried to understand why the wicked prosper. But what a difficult task that is. Then I went into your sanctuary, O God, and I finally understood the destiny of the wicked. Truly, you put them on a slippery path and send them sliding over a cliff to destruction. In an instant, they're destroyed, completely swept away by terrors. 
When you arise, O Lord, you'll laugh at their silly ideas as a person laughs at dreams in the morning. Then I realized that my heart was bitter and I was all torn up inside. I was so foolish and ignorant. I must have seemed like a senseless animal to you. Yet I still belong to you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, leading me to, your, to a glorious destiny. Whom have I in heaven but you? I desire you more than anything on earth. My health may fail. My spirit may grow weak. But God remains the strength of my heart. He's mine forever. Now, I added that, that a little bit. There's, for time, there's some repetitive parts in there. But we get the gist of that, right? We get what the author was saying. When evil seems to have the upper hand in this world, when we want to get discouraged at the way that things appear to be going, remember it is only temporary, that God is still in control, that we have not been fools to commit our lives, our purposes, and our values to him. There is an eternity in front of us that awaits us. We don't have to take matters into our own hands or start cutting off ears. We're going to conquer evil by doing good. And through that, God's victory gets revealed. So let's keep that in mind as we go through the week. Let's keep that in mind when we turn on the news or we scroll through the news feed that may be there. God is the strength of our, of our hearts. And he is ours forever. Evil has its moment, but God is ours forever. What evil can ever stand against that? Right on? All right, very cool. If you'll stand with me, please. Father, we're grateful to you for your word. And even as we read a a passage like this, where, where we witness the the work of evil, not just in this world, but against our Savior, our hero. And we see, Lord, how it is that you reveal your goodness even in the midst of that. Father, you know our hearts. You you know us. And you know that so often we are just like the psalmist. Our feet are slipping. We're almost falling out of sync with who you are because we're so frustrated at times with the way things go in this world. Maybe events in our own lives or the way people have treated us personally. Maybe we look at the larger culture or politics or whatever it may be. And we feel frustrated and we feel discouraged. We want to despair. Father, help us. Right now, in this moment, when we're gathered here together, as we've come into your sanctuary, not this building, but in the fellowship of your saints, give us, give us that momentary clarity of what this really is all about and where this is going so that it strengthens our hearts so that we find ourselves stabilized in the midst of an unsettled world. Holy Spirit, come and fill us up. Father, heal hearts. Heal our hearts and align us with your values. Align us with what is good so that we can do good and thereby overcome what's evil. I pray that for us, Father, as your followers, as your church. 
by your spirit, shape us into right representations of who you are. I pray this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Every day.
are so prone to wander. Tether us to you, Lord God. Tether us to your values and your priorities. Tether us to the gospel of Jesus Christ. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, uh, don't forget about kettle corn uh, and... uh, Please remember to go and uh, check with Susie, maybe get a prayer card, but go and see what ways that the Lord may lead us. Definitely to pray for them, but uh, how the Lord may lead us to, to offer financial aid to help the people who are hungry in, uh, in South Sudan. Uh, if you need prayer for anything, there'll be people here to pray with you after the service is over. So you can come on up and do that if you'd like. But other than that, let's speak this blessing on each other before we bail out of here. May the peace of the Lord Christ be with you wherever he may send you. May he guide you through the wilderness and protect you through the storm. May he bring you home rejoicing at the wonders he has shown you. May he bring you home rejoicing once again into these doors. Go in peace, you children of God.